1: This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Alley. Alley, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Alley, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. Now, on to my episode with John Bettis. Welcome to the Silent Giants podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at at silentgiantspodcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. For the 35th anniversary of Michael Jackson's Thriller, we are interviewing the Silent Giants, who played a vital role in helping the album become the greatest-selling album of all time. This week's Silent Giant is Grammy Award-winning songwriter John Bettis. The lyricist is behind my personal favorite song of all time, Human Nature. Human Nature was released on July 3rd of 1983 and became the fifth song off the album to reach the top ten, ultimately peaking at number seven on the pop charts while also landing at number two on the Adult Contemporary Billboard charts. In this interview, John calls into the podcast to talk about his early beginnings, how his songwriting career began with the Carpenters, the makings of Michael Jackson's human nature, and reveals for the very first time who the song is actually about. Wow, what an amazing honor. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the Grammy award-winning songwriter, my friend, the silent giant, John Bettis. Mr. John Bettis, how are you today, sir? I'm very well. How are you? I, I can't complain. Life, life is good. I am extremely honored to, to have you on the podcast uh, for this very special series. Michael Jackson is, you know, my favorite artist of, of all time. And this is my favorite. Why this interview to me is so special is that this is my favorite song of all time uh, by my favorite artist. So to interview well, you is an extreme honor.
0: Yeah, no, I'm in good company if that's true. Thank you.
1: So, um, John, I want to get right into the interview. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from uh, originally? Where does the story of John better start?
0: I-, I was born and raised in California. Uh, I was from the port of Los Angeles, a town called San Pedro. And that's where I was born and raised. So as I tell people, all I had to do was drive up the harbor freeway to get rejected. A lot of people <laughs> have to go a further.
1: Okay, okay. Did Did you grow up in a household with with music all around you? Did you come from a musical family? Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> the only thing that... Um, I come from uh, farming stock, like people who uh, were on single-family farms for as far back as history can recall. Um, people talk about their family tree, and I talk about my family ground cover. <laughs> um we were, we were uh, country folk for a long way back.
1: Oh, what did your parents do? Oh, my dad, my father owned
0: a very, very big, large uh, automobile, re- automobile repair establishment. And the family all worked there, as I did, starting at about eight years old.
1: Wow. Wow. And so, and, oh, I'm so, so sorry. Go on. I'm so sorry.
0: But my mom was the bookkeeper, and my brothers worked there. And so did I.
1: And who who were some of your early influences? Uh, Like, how did music come into your life?
0: Well, I mean, music uh, was expected of the kind of household we had. Um, When people, we lived, my family all lived in the country for as far back as anyone could remember, as i say. And music was a form of entertainment among themselves. People knew how to play musical instruments so you had something to do at night. And so my mother's family uh, could play instruments. My mother could play piano songs. Um, but when you reached the ripe old age of eight years old, you were supposed to take music lessons because you had to be of some use when the sun went down at night around the kitchen table. So my mother, my, my I was much younger than my brothers and sisters. And so my two brothers and my sister had all taken piano lessons for two years each. And by the time the two years was over, they couldn't even play the Marines' hymn in C. My mother, being a, the kind of wonderful mother that she was, pardon me, <clears throat> decided that the fault didn't lie with the children. It lay with the instrument. And so I was required to take piano lessons at eight years old but I was restricted from taking piano, <laughs> so she took me to the music store and had me point um, at an instrument I wanted to play. And the first instrument I pointed at was the drums, and my mother said, "Point again." And so I pointed at a trumpet, and so um, we actually rented that trumpet. We didn't we didn't buy it and took it home that day, and. I took it to my room, and I was kind of marveling at it, and I knew that the mouthpiece went in it. It was pretty obvious where, and I began to fool around with it and was able to make some sounds come out of it pretty readily, pretty quickly, and so within about five or six months, I could play the instrument. It just kind of seemed obvious to me, and so I began taking lessons, and I bumped up a couple of different teachers because I... Progressed rather quickly. And so my musical, uh, in terms of my, my personal involvement in playing, began to center around um, playing the trumpet.
1: And, and what were your early artists that you like, fell in love with uh, as a fan of music?
0: Yeah. In, in my lifetime, uh, mass distribution
1: of music was really,
0: really the radio. And it was that way for everyone. The record business, the way we think about it today, in terms of record sales and that sort of thing, really was a product of the late 50s, early 60s. That's that's when the record business that you think about it historically, what it is. uh, That's when it really began. Um, There was a there were a few million sellers. I mean, Bing Crosby had a million seller on White Christmas, but in 40 45, 46, somewhere in there. But there, nobody really sold that many records. And to be honest, record players weren't the center of people's lives, the radio was. And so in my life, the transistor radio was the Japanese, the first Japanese hit. It was the personal computer of my era. You could, you know, most radios were furniture that made the sound. Is what they were. They were the further, you couldn't carry them around. And a transistor radio was roughly the size of a pack of cigarettes. And you could hold it in your hand and carry it with you anywhere you went. And the radio stations uh, responded to that sort of proliferation of of radios and the baby boom, of which I was the leading edge. And there were a lot of different radio stations on AM radio and the radio stations that played, played everything. Because everybody had a transistor radio.
1: At at what point when you were 16 years old did you realize that, was there a point when you were 16 that you realized you could do this as a career professionally? No,
0: professional. No, no. No, I was on on track to become um, a lawyer um, probably of the international affairs type. Um, I was good at that stuff. And so that was just another side of my life, and speechifying was another part of my life. I had had many different facets to my life, and they weren't really interconnected, and writing was also a part of it. And so when I was 16 years old, obviously because I played trumpet, um, I was in the pit band for the high school musical every year. And in the spring of every year, my high school would do a musical, you know, the usual. They would do Pirates of Penzance. They would do South Pacific. And, well, was it Pirates of Penzance? Yeah, I guess it was. In the fall of my, in the fall, in the spring of my junior year, I was in the pit band playing first trumpet. And I looked up and saw this guy I knew from class. And he had the lead in the high school musical. And I knew I was better than he was. And so, you know, I said, you know what? I'm going to do that next year. I can do that better than he can. I Don't ask me where I got that kind of arrogance, but I had it. And so I just put that in the back of my mind. And I, in the fall, I joined the the uh, drama club and, and got a role in the straight play in the fall, but it got canceled. It was the play we were doing was called Enter the Body and the opening night was November 22nd, 1963 which was the day that Kennedy was shot. So obviously we weren't going to do a performance of that show that night. Wow. And so I never really got to perform. And so they had auditions for the high school musical, which was to be Carousel. And I'd never sung in public in front of anyone before. I'd never listened to the score of Carousel. I learned the song Oh What a Beautiful Morning because I thought it was in Carousel, which it isn't, it's in Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) And I went on and I sang it a cappella because I didn't know how to get a company. I didn't know anybody who played piano who would do it, you know. And I certainly couldn't play it on a trumpet and sing at the same time, and that was the only instrument I had. And I got to lead the musical out of nowhere, and I don't know where I got the guts to do that. But I got to lead the high school musical, and having never sung in public before, not one. And uh, in the in the rehearsing of that musical, because they gave me a score to learn, right? I became aware of because I I loved popular songs, and I could. It's it's a diversion, it's a tangent for me to tell you which. Because I go back to seventy eight records. But I love popular songs have always excited me more than any other art form. Um, and so I, in the process of learning that marvelous score to Carousel, believe it or not, it was the first time I was that somebody actually written that. I looked at the sheet music and it said music by Richard Rodgers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. And I went, oh my God, somebody writes these things. And, um, everything all kind of collided for me. President of my class in high school asking for a good school. I was going to a good school, good college from there. And I literally, my poor mother, I just literally made up my mind. Nope. I'm going to show business. That's the way I thought of it, by the way. Wow. I did not think that I was becoming a, a folk singer or a protest singer or, um, I, I just knew I was going into show business. That's the way I thought of it.
1: And what did your, what did your, your mother and your father think about you um, wanting to pursue a career uh, in show business? Well, my,
0: my father was recently passed away. And to be perfectly candid, it's one of the reasons I got away with it. Because my father had died that same calendar year. And my mother was devastated by that event. And so she was mourning and uh, and my other brothers and sisters were taking care of her. And so I got kind of cut loose in a way. And so nobody was really noticing I made the choice for a year or two. And if they did think about it, which I have never talked to them about, but if they did think I'd made the choice, they thought I was just kind of sowing my wild oats. Yeah. I was going to get tired of it. And, you know, that didn't happen, of course. But I think that if you
1: ask them, I bet that's what they'd say. So after after so, high school, what was the next step for you?
0: Uh, well, I went to a, a junior college instead of a four-year school back east. And I started, to be honest, I started trying to be a professional performer immediately. <laughs> I didn't sit around with I mean I did the writing side. I did sit around by myself and write and clandestinely play and try to improve and listen to other people's stuff, copy other people's stuff, all that stuff. That was as a part of my that wasn't much of a part of my performing career. My partner and I, I formed a duo with that guy and that was my understudy and yeah. we just started putting together an act. To be honest with you. We started to perform songs, and we, were, we, would, we just just, just uh, immorally stole other people's acts. <laughs> we, stole, we just did. We'd steal their harmonies. We'd steal their comedy bits. Uh, we didn't know any different. We didn't know you weren't supposed to. And so we did that for about a year and a half. And then um, what they call open mics now. They used to call hootenannies, but they were the same thing. On a Sunday night, you went to a club that would let you play for free. And it's great for the club because you bring all your friends with you and they order drinks and stuff. And you're free entertainment. And so every Sunday night or every night we could, we'd be performing at a club that would let us perform for free. Anyhow, at the end of the of the... Summer, my friend, my my future friend, came to my part of me and said, "Look, um, you're gonna win this." And the, what you got was a guitar. You got an Epiphone guitar. And David said, "You guys won, but Jimmy Sirius needs the guitar more because his guitar is a disaster. So I'm gonna let Jimmy win and give him a guitar." but I'm going to give you guys a two-week-in job opening for Hoyt Axton as kind of like your prize. And so we got our first professional job from that. But the first night we were performing back then, Hoyt attracted a big biker audience. That's who The bikers always came to see Hoyt Axton. Not a friendly audience for people doing the cat game. That way we do you know, Four strong winds that blow lonely. They, they didn't come to hear that. And so uh, we were in the backstage not knowing quite what was going on. We realized what it wasn't there. We went on to our first set. We did our 25 or 30 minutes. We came up, up, off and backstage, my friend David came up to me and said, you guys are going to have to do a second set. Hoyt's not here yet. And Maury and I didn't have a second set. <laughs> we had one set. Thank you very much. And so, the, house, the, the first time out there, people were yelling at us from the audience to get off. They were chanting Hoyt's name, smoking unfiltered cigarettes, and throwing things. So we weren't excited about it. But we went back out, and that's actually the first time I performed original material because we didn't have anything else. I can't tell you what the songs were. I'm sure they were very bad. And so that set went terribly. And we went backstage. And David said, you still, oh, he still wasn't there. And he said, you've got to go back on and do another set. Before, and I said, David, honest to God, we don't know anything else. <laughs> we're, definitely, we're definitely not going back out there and repeating material. That's not a good idea. <laughs> and so we barricaded ourselves in the kitchen from the crowd. And just about the time they realized the doors were were, were jammed and started banging on them. Hoyt finally showed up and uh, he went on and calmed everybody down.
1: And give me a, give me a, um, a timetable of like what year is this roughly?
0: Oh, that would have been between the years of 64 and 60 middle
1: 66. Okay, okay. Now at this point, did, you still had uh, your main focus was being a performing artist.
0: So, yeah, I wrote all the time, but yeah.
1: And so what was your next move? Did you, did you have to move to a major city like Los Angeles or, or New York?
0: Uh, no, I was in Los Angeles, so I didn't have to go anywhere. Um, my friend and I were driving in the car one day, my partner, my performing partner, and Simon and Garfunkel came on the radio uh, with the record Sounds of Silence, and honest to God, the truth is, we heard that record on the air and we realized our career as a duo was over. Because we were no, we knew we were not as a duo going to get as good as Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. And I'm not quite sure how we had that sort of good sense or taste. but we did. And so in that moment, we kind of broke up driving driving in that car.
1: Wait, so literally there was a realization. Simon and Garfunkel yeah. came out, and you're like, "This All is
0: on the mask sort of thing." <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh man you know what you know the the beautiful thing i always say about uh smart people is a self-realization of like you know what we should pivot <laughs> yeah well this was
0: you know get out of dodge because you can't do it and so um i went maury kept going to the junior college we we're going to and i changed colleges and i was going to go back to my legal studies and i enrolled with a heavy political science caseload to make up for the wasted time of the last two years. And as a goof, I tried to get into the choir because I had been in the choirs forever, at least for four years since the musical, as a result of trying out for that choir, which I had no business getting into uh, because I was nowhere near a good good enough musician to be in that choir. Um, I met Richard Carpenter, and Richard Carpenter and I began to write songs together through a series of events, and we began the group the Carpenters together.
1: And so was this, was the Carpenters' situation that you were a member of the Carpenters, or was was it always understood that you were going to be a writer for the Carpenters?
0: It started around, it began with Richard and me, I writing songs together, and that was the impetus for the band to be formed. we have been writing songs together in one of the rehearsal rooms for probably two months, something like that, maybe three. And he came, not nah, two, probably. And he came to me one day and he said, look, I know you don't know my life or anything like that, but, you know, you know, I won the battle. of the Yeah, I know that it was congrats." Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, but that my bass player is moving away and I want to make a break. And look, I've got a sister who sings and plays, drums. I really like what we're doing together why don't we make a group with my sister and then we'll like audition people from the music department and put them in the band. Cause I've got a sound in my head and I'm going to need good musicians to sing that sound and play that sound. And you and I'll write the songs And I said, why not? And so, you know, it centered around the first few get togethers of the group were just really just that me and Richard and Karen. It was, that was where it started. And we went around, and there's a lot of stories from how the people got in the band. But um, we literally began to sort of, I don't want to say audition, that makes it sound too formal, but certainly sort of look around and try to decide who else should be in the band.
1: Now, did you know, meeting Richard and, and meeting Karen, that was there a feeling of, wow, this is really, really special? Or did it feel kind of routine or just kind of natural to to be in this moment.
0: Well, I think, as I said earlier, um, I had a I had a feeling of destiny about my involvement with uh, mu- music in the first place, but more specifically about something that would I made up my mind as at when I graduated from high school that this was the direction I was going. It had the feeling of destiny to me. In other words, I had that sort of arrogance of use that it felt meant to be sort of thing. Yeah. And I have to say that um, I don't know whether we, you know, know, it wasn't a Hollywood movie. We're just ordinary people. But um, we all shared a sense of kismet about it. And something felt right about it from the beginning. Uh, and we certainly got rejected a lot so we had ample opportunity to doubt it but no it, it was more that yeah it felt natural in that what the 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 ethical system of our band was what we used to call it had to crank and I, I, nobody ever uses that word but us but what that meant was it had to be musically excellent. But it also had to be something that we thought had um, commercial possibilities, too. That made it crank, because it wasn't just self-indulgent musical excellence. You know, we certainly weren't trying to do jazz or anything. And um, then the third thing was it had to mean something. It had to, I think the word we would have used was resonate. Okay to be something about it had to be about more than just us
1: tell me a little bit about like the the disappointments or rejections you guys faced early on the best one i
0: know of the one that kind of encapsulates it all is richard and i were working playing playing gaslight music on main street in disneyland all day long
1: this sounds and this rehearsing- sounds absolutely terrible <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's true. I got a picture of it in my, in my office today, about 1967 at Disneyland. The summer of love, I was singing, Ain't She Sweet and Coke Corner. <laughs> and so was Richard. Um, but um, we got two days off a week. And so, you know, we'd play and rehearse, play and rehearse for five days. Sometimes we'd record. So eventually, after a few months of that, you know, by, say, June. we went to work there in April-ish. So I would say by mid mid to late June, we probably had four demo tracks of our band. And so Richard and I would take that reel-to-reel tape. They're meeting with record labels. And the best, the one I can tell you that encapsulates the whole experience, the whole experience, not with no exception was we went and had a meeting with Neely Plum, who was the head of A&R for RCA Records. Uh, and that was, his job would have been overall of North America, at least, Neely Plum, A&R, right? Yeah. We played him. We gave him the reel-to-reel, and he put it on. He didn't play it for him. He played it. But he got through maybe a song. I think it was half the song. He rolled up the tape, put it back in the white rectangular square box that it came in, and he threw it at our head. <laughs> and he, just, he said,
1: get the hell out of my office. <laughs> Did any of these songs become uh, that you played become the hit records? No,
0: not the hit. We, the songs that we played were packed onto the first hour of our composition. Were packed onto the first three records, um, and the fact of the matter, Neely, I think what Neely was right about where we were at, but he was wrong about where we were going. You understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And he 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 didn't he definitely didn't have the musical imagination to listen to it and hear between the lines, and he certainly didn't have a right to react quite that violently but um the you know the first album that we did was packed with 11 of our songs and it sold about nine records but it Neely probably had a point and what we needed was somebody to develop us and that certainly wasn't going to happen with Neely plum apparently
1: de- de- um, definitely definitely not
0: <laughs> and so but eventually the development did happen
1: I want to get into the makings of of human nature now. And when did you uh, meet Quincy Jones? Like, how did that relationship start with Quincy? Oh,
0: what everybody's going to tell you the same thing. Quincy finds you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's just like you just wait in the station. If you're lucky, he's going to come through. <laughs> you know, when when it's time for Quincy when it's time for you and Quincy's life, Quincy finds you. And so Quincy had found me after after the song Slow Hair. Um Quincy had I had noticed that song and let my publisher know he'd noticed that song. And he really liked the snaky feel of it and the way the lyric worked. And so he mon- he wanted to meet with the two of us, me and Michael Clark. And so nicely enough, we went to this really nice house in Bel Air Canyon and Stone Canyon. And Quincy, you know, we had sandwiches. And I mean, it's Quincy is a joy to be with. It's one of the reasons his records always feel so good. Quincy is just a, a complete joy to be with, especially once you're on the subject of music, because it's uh, nothing is is too far away. Nothing is. Quincy's great. And so um, we met with him and he was producing Donna. We had written a song called Heart of the Night and he wanted to record it on Donna Summer. But he said, these lyrics, I know that they're right for that feel, but Donna can't do these. And I don't know whether this, I think I remember, musically the feel's not right for Donna. I mean, I, I can tell it's a great song. It was later a modest hit for Juice Newton. But, you know, it's not right for Donna. And we totally agreed with it. It was not right for Donna some of the way it was. And so, um, we tried for, well, for at least four or five months to fix the song for Quincy, for Donna. And, you know, he had a little bit of a sales job going on too, because Donna was a writer. She eventually became a dear, dear, dear friend. So I know how it worked with Donna. Yeah. And so Quincy was trying to, you know, let Donna write songs, but also bring songs to her that he thought were good for that. So that's always, that's a difficult bridge to cross. And so it didn't work out for heart of the night for Donna. And so we let it go and Keith Newton cut it. But we went back to, Michael was living in Tennessee and I was a a resident sometime, uh, a half resident myself And so we both went back to Nashville and sat down and wrote a song that Donna did cut called The Woman in Me, which is big hit internationally, but not here. And so Quincy, that that formed a relationship, and that went on for like 18 months. And then Quincy disappeared into the follow-up to the Off the Wall album. That's the way the timing was. Okay. And so I, I just kind of merrily walked back into my life and I started pursuing the lyric style that I'd discovered on Slowhand, which was kind of a uh, a mitzvah for me, because I had been able to put three or four different sides of my personality, sides of my writing style in that. And also it worked very well with Michael Clark because he was a really good editor of my work, a really good inspiration for my work. But anyhow I started taking that out and doing it in different places in films with other artists. Uh, the Madonna record, Crazy for You, came on at the time that wrote with John Land. So a lot of things, I, I had a lot on my mind. I was aware Michael was cutting. <clears throat> but the way I was writing at the time, I was a huge fan. But I would to be honest with myself, I'm not really writing, but I bet you Michael's cutting. And for the songs I hear that my buddies are playing me, that he seems to be cutting, the musicians would tell me what kind of songs they were working on, but we're just not on the same racetrack. And God, I can't wait to buy the record, but this is not for me. So I just blissfully went on and did what I was doing and, you know, waited like everybody else on the sidelines, can't wait to buy the next Michael Jackson record. And so um, one day the phone rang at my house in Mandeville Canyon. It's my publisher. And it Kathy Carey. And she said, Q is looking for you. I said, really? Really? Because I assumed he was up to his nose because the album had to be getting finished. They'd been doing it for a while. Right. I couldn't believe really he was looking for me. I figured he'd be mastering. He'd be, I don't know. He would, last thing he'd be looking for was me. I'm not a recording snarey. <laughs> you know, what does he need me for? And so she said, no, he just wants to talk to you about something. I said, well, you know, fine. He said, are you around? What are you doing today? And I said, I'm got kind of happy. I'm doing what I do every day. I write a song. And she said, fine, just stay there. It was about 2 in the afternoon. So about 3Q called. And, you know, he called up. And he was the same old guy. He said, God, yeah, hey, man, what's going on? What are you doing? I said, yeah, I'm great. What's been happening? And I told him about, I think, the Madonna thing. And he yeah, that's cool. Yeah, what else I was working on? What are you listening to, all that? He said, listen, here's the deal you know, I'm working on the microwave. And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, we thought we were finished. And we had, I forget if he told me they'd mastered it or they'd mixed it, but somehow they'd reached a crossroads or Watershed Point. And they took stock and they listened to the album, I think, as a whole. And he (laughs) and Rod Temperton and Michael, and, and, and if Bruce had a vote, maybe, I don't know, But the inner core, you know, the the great four horsemen of the musical genius there, um, had decided they needed one more thing. And I don't, you know what, he didn't tell me a name for what they were looking for. But he said, we need something. And I said, okay. And he said that he had called David Page, who, you know, obviously had keys to the kingdom at that point. And he asked David for some songs, which made sense for Michael. And David had sent him um, a uh, – David was on the road in England. But he had his studio tech put together three of his songs on a cassette because we still worked on cassettes in those days and, and messaged them over to Quincy and Rod and Michael, I presume. I mean, I know he did it to Quincy, so I can't imagine the other guys didn't hear it too. And um, they listened to it. And while they were good songs, They were not what they were looking for. And at the very tail end, the the studio tech had used a used cassette. There was prior musical information on the cassette. And when David's last song ended, there was a little snippet of, ha, ha, da-da-da-da, human nature, ha, ha, do me that way. And that's all they heard. (laughs) And Twisty what we want that. (laughs) <laughs> and they called Dave. they called David up, and they they found David backstage probably, and they said, you know, thank you. I, imagine. I can imagine just hear David doing that. Thank you. How was it, man? Did you think it? And put you know, probably was very complimentary about songs, but he said, but none of those are really right for what we're looking for. But there was a little snippet at the end, and, you know. David didn't know what he was talking about,
1: and, and, and also I want to I want to give a little context too. Too is David Steve Picaro's brother.
0: No, David Page is the musical center of Toto. Okay, he's the, he's the he's the keyboard genius at the center of Toto, and he's the sole writer on Rosanna and "Africa," and "Hold the Line." I think is a hundred percent his too. Don't take to the bank on that. He may share a songwriting credit on
1: that one. And, and also, too, I want to I want to point out as well the importance of human nature sonically, because you know at this time Toto, I think they were fresh off of was it Africa in eighty one? Yeah. And these yeah, they were they had revolutionized you know had, the music industry as far yeah, as sonically. Exactly.
0: exactly, and they had they did Rosanna, then they did Africa, and that. Those singles lasted a long time. So I think they they raked in all the Grammys they got in the calendar year. They got the Grammys in the calendar year of eighty three. And they were probably burning up the road at the time because that's what you're gonna do. And so yeah, they had they had kind of single handedly, sonically reinvented the pop records, the pop record landscape. That reinvention actually started with Bill Cuomo, and Cuomo on the, the record, Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. That was the first time any of us had ever heard a Lind uh, processor. And that doo-doo-doo, doo-doo-doo. Doo. Nobody had ever heard that sound before. And Bill Cuomo really kind of single-handedly reinvented the record business for everybody. And then standing right there in the wings, there was like Betty Davis eyes and Christopher Cross at his moment. And then the the Toto record came out. And what Toto did was take what Como had introduced everybody to and put it in the context of a band. And they were really virtuosos at, at those types of instruments. They really were. And at the at the heart of it was the composer of human nature. Because Steve Piccaro ended up to you know well, David's on the phone and he finally understands what Quincy's asking him. And he said, That's not my song, man. That's Steve Picaro's song. And so Quincy says, Well, obviously, where's Steve? Give be Steve. I want Steve. And so they found Steve, and Steve was of course on the road. What Steve's role was and that probably goes to your point. It's very important to know. Steve's role was he was the techno magician at the center of Toto. He did all the programming. He did all the musical. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month.
0: Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Computer work. He did all the computer sound work. You know, he didn't play the parts for David. Right. But he was coming up with the sounds that David played the parts with.
1: Got you. Okay.
0: And Steve is also not a bad keyboard player himself. Nobody's David Page. I mean, David Page is on Richard Carpenter, uh, Michael Amartian level, Walter Afanasiev level. Okay. Every now and then a player like that comes along. Probably the closest to his league would be Walter A. Because Walter A. is R and B ish the way David is. And I don't know if you well-draffenounce but he's worth finding out about, because he was probably the most important
1: producer of the first half of the '90s. And so, from the from the he, end of that he, from the end of that tape, how yeah. how, how do you come into play? Uh, okay, w- so with Quincy, the
0: lyrics. Get, Quincy gets a hold of Steve and says, I, "Steve, is that a whole song?" And Steve says, "Well, I guess, I, guess. I mean, he must have said." He said, you know, it's, it's, a music, it's a complete musical idea. Yeah. And he said, can I get a copy of it? Do you have a lyric? And he said, well, yes, you could have a copy. No, I don't have a lyric. And so Quincy, that tech, went back and found Steve's uh, track, demo set of tracks, which knowing Steve was probably a great deal like the record. And um, he roughed up, because it wasn't mixed or anything. So the tech had to throw it up, do a rough mix of it all the way Steve just had it on tape as kind of a jot, a sketch, and send it to me on a cassette. And he said, he said I'm going to send this to you. And there's just a couple of words on it. But I need a lyric by tomorrow at 430 in the afternoon. <laughs> I said, really? He says, yeah. So let me know if you don't think you can do it. And I, I said, well, I can do it. You know, I mean, I don't know how well I'm going to do it, but I can do it. And so he sent me over the cassette. And I don't, to be honest, I don't remember being nervous about it because I was so comfortable with Quincy. And at the time I was, um, it was more of a why not, you know, because those things are always too good to be true. It's a last minute record. A lot of times they'll ask you to do things at the last minute and not use the song. Because they said, ah, oh, that was a bad idea. And they put out the record the way they always did. I mean, record producers in general do that. And you just kind of do it for the relationship. But I remember putting on Human Nature and hearing the track and saying, thinking a couple of things. First of all, I've never heard anything like that before. That's that, good for you, Steve Pecano. I don't know you from Adam, but that's an original idea. Yeah. Good for you. i going to make this is easier. Because that's an original idea, it's an original set of sounds, and it's it's a well-crafted melody. It had a few uh, melodic challenges hanging all over it. The verses weren't so easy to get a device to make work. Because the first three notes are tough. Because it's ah, ah, ah kind of out there on their own like staccato notes yeah and you got to pick the right um words to say over that or it'll you won't The inner something that you'll be left-footed from the very beginning you've got to pick something that the words that rhythm like, exactly what like. hold on i think my wife is home <laughs> <laughs> my dogs get crazy but we live you know we're in a in a in a the date part of Nashville there guard us from all sorts of mean beasties out there.
1: Oh, no, I, I understand. Um, I'm from Virginia. I understand. There you go.
0: Um, so anyhow, it, uh, that was that and filling in the blanks on Steve's chorus. I liked it, The chorus so well on first listen, I went, okay, well that's going to be a challenge because I'm going to have to find a way to take the ideas he's already got there make them make sense with the verse, and also make them sound like one guy wrote them. You almost either want the composer to write everything lyrically in the chorus, you don't have to fool with it, or nothing. When they only write a tiny sketch in it, it can be, always be the most dangerous, especially if it sings well, which the idea of, of human nature, and do me that way, sang so well that I knew I couldn't
1: contain them. And so, what so, what what inspired? Because um, uh, when when you when Quincy gives you the song and, and calls you, um, you know, what did you instantly do? And what was the inspiration behind the well, the, the record?
0: Did was set, the first thing he did was set boundaries for me, because you know I was older than Michael by, you know, I was in my early 30s, he was 22. So Quincy gave me two. Um, working things i i'm gonna see if i remember but the first one i definitely remember was john remember he's only 22. (laughs) okay 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 clearly he didn't want me to write anything you know intellectual or anything you know like it has to sound like he's younger than you are john and then he wanted me to make it um Michael's tone of voice, but that's a little difficult to talk to because Michael had a very, very singular way of expressing himself. Michael could be at once wise and incredibly naive in the same lyric, and you would buy both. Hmm. He could be very masculine and aggressive, and yet there was a certain tenderness or vulnerability to it. It's one of the great mysteries or paradoxes of that which is Michael Jackson mm, is he could, he could he could unify opposites really well and um that yeah I you know i I don't think I knew as much then as I know now about Michael um but I knew that was there and I knew what he was saying he he wanted it to be germane to Michael pardon the pun. <laughs> 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 um, and um so uh, I said, OK, so I listened to it and I I, I had a, an enormously positive reaction to it, but I was still unsure about, A, what I was going to write about and B, how I was going to write it. And I heard the, you know, I'd written in enough songs by that point that I knew identified the rough spot. And then what you're like, whatever you want to say there, you're going to have to say so that it's singable. Because those three notes are tough, John, and it's the first three notes of the song. So you know, if you don't get that, you don't got it. And so I answered that question. I put it on. I said, "Okay." And I just—I didn't take it to my office. I just sat in my library and put it on a little handheld cassette machine, and took out my usual yellow tablet, started writing, and I solved the puzzle of the opening line fairly quickly with the phrase "Look." out that thing over Steve's notes. And you can tell I was thinking about it at the time. because The case K, in K the very next word, across the nighttime, I was very conscious of wanting to reinforce the K. Yeah. So that Michael would have a very easy go of it. And nighttime just kind of occurred to me. And then the first Verse is pretty much atmospheric in order to set the stage. And I knew I wanted it to be sensual and yet with a sense of personal isolation. That's, I don't know, for some reason I knew that was Michael. And so I got through the first verse and um, I went, okay, I like this verse very much. The City Winks the Sleepless Eye really got me. I like that. Sweet, seducing sighs. I could just hear Michael singing that. And then I stopped, and I went, okay, what's this about, though? I mean, I've got a title coming at me, and I've got this verse, which is a nice atmospheric. I believe this person is there, and I, be- I believe it's night, and I believe my, my heart's trying to tell a sensual story here. I get it. I get what I'm doing. Why am I doing it? And this is something I've taken saying say now because I'm of an age that doesn't hurt anybody. You have to remember that I was a part of Karen Carpenter's life. I mean an intimate part. And I under Karen became famous when she was a little over sixteen or seventeen. Okay. All right? And she never got a chance to emotionally develop ever from that point onward. And that was inherent in the neurotic disorder that that killed her. And that it's, that's my view. Yeah. And I watched the toll stardom took on her and I got to thinking about Michael and I hadn't realized I had an instinct about Michael, but I did. And my instinct was that he and Karen had a hell of a lot in common. One, they'd become stars very young. Of course, Michael much younger than Karen, of course. And thereby the, the, the restrictions on his life were greater. Um, but nonetheless, I felt as if I understood it. And I'd always felt that I never, ever was able to tell Karen what I thought would fix it. A good dose of anonymous adventure would have fixed Karen Carpenter. If she could have found a way, we didn't know how to do that. Come on, we were kids. But if she would have found a way to go to Hong Kong and live in a apartment for a year and call herself um, Susan Garrett, <laughs> right? Yeah. And hang out at the hotel bar at the Peninsula for a while. I think it would have done her some good.
1: Because this is—it's is amazing was, to me that this song is about is influenced by Karen Carpenter.
0: You know, it's it's very much influenced by Karen. Carpenter. Wow. Because I had to have a storyline, and it was. In retrospect now, and I've, I've only taken now to admitting what my personal inspiration was. I did admit it to Michael at one point, but it was a, a very short more short period of time. Um, sorry, okay, if I were to give Michael a song to sing that he could take away, kind of like a love letter of Michael, take this with you. And as you perform this song, I hope the message gets through that as you sing it, it's going to inspire you to be it. If this song is it, that hopefully the expression in this song, this is arrogant beyond belief on my part, will be, um, uh, will lead you into like doing things that would be good for you. That will give you a life for yourself. That will let you have an existence on your own. And I went, Okay. That I, I think I can write a song. I've got it. That inspires me enough to imagine that I might be able to have a conversation, even at a distance, with Michael Jackson that I wish I would have had with Karen. And so um, uh, the second verse um, is about. It began with that idea. Get me out into the nighttime. Four walls won't hold me tonight. If this town is just an apple, let me take a bite. And When I wrote, if the sound is just an apple, let me take a bite. I was thinking about the fact that Karen was living in New York just before she died. And I knew that's what it was, but I was feeling it so deeply that I wrote one of the best lines of my career right there. It still stands in my view of my own work when I review my own work. And I'm happy with some of what I've done. Um, that, That stands way up there in terms of my favorite lines of my own.
1: Man, this is giving me. Uh, this, this is literally giving me chills. This is unbelievable. <laughs> and so,
0: I and I, it, it, it had it, it had everything going for it that line. It, had, it can, it's repeatable. It's quotable. I had no idea I was going to use Big Apple in that way, and I was a little proud of myself for doing it. <laughs> it just kind of fell out. And so, literally, I, I when I, that line fell out, I was like, "Oh, this idea is going to work." But I can't work here because this is my working space. I've got to get out of here before I go too far because I might blow the idea. So I poured myself a small glass of red wine, very small, went to my office, sat down at my desk um, with a way long time ago personal computer and put the tape on my speakers that I kept right by my computer. And I went to work in earnest. Um, And by, I don't know, nine that night, I had everything that you know of as human nature, really—the thing that you that you know of as the song. Now, um,
1: now how did you get this song back uh, back to to Quincy, and and what was the approval process like?
0: <laughs> very in a very, very, very awkward, rough state. I I went to bed that night. I didn't have any. I, I wasn't particularly excited nor depressed. I you know, as usual when I have a good writing session like that, it's hard to go to sleep, but I just watch probably a movie or something. And I was to go to Steve Picaro's house and be there, let's say, at one or twelve. And I didn't know Steve from Adam and he'd just flown in from being on the road while I was writing the song, he was on an airplane. And we met at their studio, which was in the garage behind their house, because he lived with Paige at the time, And which was, uh, uh, it, 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 you know, uh, all the equipment that will fit inside a PC these days was jam-packed in this uh, garage, and you could barely walk around in it. And I, you know, and uh, I got there, I don't know, noonish, let's say, I don't really remember, but Steve wasn't up yet, so I had to wait and wait and wait for Steve to get out. And I had typewritten copies. I think I had two or three copies of the lyric. And I was calling... uh, Wait a minute. I like living this way. I I called the song that, by the way. I didn't call it human nature. uh, And Quincy changed it back. Um, And so um, I sat with Steve, and I can't remember. I think he probably played it um, as I laid the... And he just went through it, and he said... That's really good, man. And I said, thanks. And he said, but, and there was a, there was a form change. The bridge wasn't on the tape I got. The bridge that, well, little girl, well, that wasn't on my tape. And I can't, I don't think there was, I think there was a, a variation at third verse. What I can remember is that I had to quickly revise the third verse in the bridge, and I cannibalized something from somewhere and wrote. It. Somehow I had to massage the third verse out, and I can't remember how, but I did. And so we got that done, and literally, Steve and I had known each other maybe three hours by this point, and we've gotten our separate cars and so we drove to Westlake Audio. And I walked in with these stupid typewritten pieces of paper. I was nervous, but not over the top. Um, and I mean, you know, I'd been in the business a long time, so it was kind of familiar ground to me. But I only knew Quincy; I didn't know any of these other people. And so we walked into the control room, and Michael was there with uh, the snake. I think he just—he was just gonna feed it, or had finished feeding it, or something. Michael was with the snake. Temperton was there. Sweeting was there. Quincy was there. And Steve had a G1 Yamaha set up in the studio. That's the old wood cabinet synthesizer. That was all the rage. Yamaha, I think it was G1. And for for him to present the song. And to my knowledge, they might have played the tape. Steve might have played it. I can't recall. Um, but at some point, certainly, Steve played it on the G1 because we were go- they were going over something. But So we must have played it in the tape first. But anyhow, I think I, Steve and I croaked it to Quincy. And Michael was there. The snake was gone at this point. He was reading. Temperton's there. Swedeen was looking off somebody else's lyrics. <laughs> and Quincy was sitting, you know, in, as the godlike figure he should. And um when it was all over, Quincy just looked up and he said, That's right.
1: Wow. <laughs> I said,
0: really? And he said, Yeah, that's right. And I said, Good, okay.
1: And and and, and, um, and how how was how was Michael's was Michael also like like all on board, like thumbs up, this is amazing?
0: Oh yeah, Michael was um uh, first of all his three actions and I, I learned this as I was around him just a little bit as the time went on after this event. Michael expressed himself physically the best. Um, Conversationally, he was a very sort of, you could say he was shy, but that doesn't do him enough justice. He was an artist. He was a poet. He, in his social demeanor, he, he really liked fun and stuff, but if he wasn't, Having to say something, it was just fooling around. I mean, I read a few quotes from Brooke Shields that tells me she knew that side of Michael Jackson better than most. Michael liked to have fun. Michael was a good guy. <clears throat> but when it came to social conversation, he was very quiet. But when he was listening to the song, he was moving as only Michael Jackson can. Wow! And I can tell it was working on him. I mean, he wasn't doing a performance-level moving. I could tell the song was working on and for him. But he wasn't comfortable with speaking out about it. And that's why I think Quincy was just used to the idea of speaking out first as the adult. And by saying that's right to me, I know now what Quincy was doing is saying, I've made the decision. This is correct. Michael, you don't have to worry. You don't have to get involved here. I've got it. You know what I mean? Right, 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 right. And Michael after and then after that, Michael, of course, was, oh, it's so beautiful. I really, this line here, he liked the sweet, seducing size a lot. He got, if the sound is just, the minute, oh, that's right. The minute he thought if this sound is just an apple, let me take a bite, he did one of his, you know, that big grin he gets. Yeah. It, it went by. He, you know, it was a good line, and he also knew, you know, I'm going to kill that line. <laughs> I'm going to kill that line. I know that. Because he was not in the dark that he was talented. By the way, Michael knew he was good. Um, but afterwards, when uh, there was a, a Rod Temperton moment there, what what happened? The next intersection with Michael on the song for me was it was Rod Temperton's birthday. Okay. Well, so after we had presented them the song, they had hired a Stripogram to come in and sing Happy Birthday to Rod Temperature. But they kind of shooed me and Michael out of the room. And it was kind of an excuse, right? right? Because they, I think they believed it would embarrass Michael. He wouldn't really, you know, that's not really something I don't want to be a part of. Thank you very much. And so Ian and I ended up in this sort of weird little ante room that led down to a vocal booth, probably there. And we were there for a while because they enjoyed themselves. And he essentially asked me because he didn't know me. He was very shy about it. You know, there was an age difference. And he didn't really know my career before then. He had no reason to. And so he looked at me and he and you know, he's looking for something to say, this is really you know, he said something required, like, it's a really beautiful lyric. I really love this lyric. And then this conversation kind of died and said, thank you, thank you. And he stood there minute. he looked at me and his uh, visage changed. And he said, how did you know? And I said, Karen. And his eyes shot big. And he went, oh, you, that's right. Karen Carpenter. Said, yeah. And he looked at me and said, oh, oh, he got it. Wow, he got. It. I didn't need to give chapter and verse at all. At all, he got it. Now I, I'm presuming that he got what I think he got. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But he got, he got his version of it, whatever that might have been.
1: And when did they? When did they um, cut the cut the record? Were you there for the recording? That day. That night. That day, that night, the
0: minute we were finished presenting it, and the lyric was accepted, they I mean when I once the strip was over, right? When I mean immediately, I mean immediately. David Page was already there. Um uh Rosanna was there because she was Steve Pacal's girlfriend at the time, Roseanne um oh, what was her name? Uh, she has a sister who's uh, what's her last name? Arquette. That Rosanna was written about it, Rosanna Arquette. Okay. And that was Picardo's girlfriend at the time, and so she was there, nice lady. And then a bass player was there.
1: And th- wow. And and when you when the, when the record it was, was when the record was done and finished, did you walk away being like? Wow, this is going to be... Did you know what you had at that moment? No.
0: No, no. As a matter of fact, I didn't stay for the whole recording because, to be honest, I was a fifth wheel. Uh, it wasn't my job, and um, it became clear once they started to put down tracks with Paige and Piccaro playing, and then they started to layer it, and Paige and Piccaro started talking to this with Dean, and they were they were talking about patches, and this is what we're going to do it. Oh, we have to put this processor, we have to, pro, we have to put the limb thing here. Blah blah blah. It became a recording session, and I don't mean to say this in any sort of critical way because I don't mean it in that way, any way whatsoever. The vibe clearly became, okay, this is a closed session. This is a Michael Jackson session, right? Yeah, and. You know, I could have stayed. I, no one would have ever said, "John, you have to leave." That would have never happened. But I caught the vibe, and I went, "You know what? I really had to get the hell out of here because they're 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 they they don't need me. I'll hear this record soon enough, and I'm done." And so after about 45 minutes, I excused myself and kind of left and saved them the trouble of having to awkwardly sort of get rid of me. You know what I mean? Right.
1: <laughs> like, so, I should probably go. So the,
0: I left, and to be honest with you, I, and this is going to sound like I'm a dope, like I'm an idiot, like I don't pay any attention, like I'm careless. Maybe I am. I really didn't think about it. I remember the click because at the, I had been a part of, a, of enough success record-wise with enough different artists in enough different genres, where I was kind of used to the, you know, the release, the the hype, the the hit. You know, what I mean, when I wrote the song, "The Girl Is Mine," was already out, was already being a hit. So, um, it was kind of a regular sort of, um, it, it sounds awkward to say. I knew it was a big record, but, you know, Off the Wall sold, what, $3 million, right? Yeah. And, I mean, you know, and you, there's nothing wrong with $3 million, but you're going, okay, that's great. This is going to be fun. It, it's, you know, it's Michael Jackson. This is great. But, first of all, none of us knew the sound of the record, because they didn't play any of that record. The only thing I heard was "Human Nature" in the state it was in when I wrote it, and "The Girl Is Mine" on the radio. And sonically speaking, that record was a complete nuclear weapon on everybody's head, because what they did on that record was different than it, 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 was, it was different than any record anybody ever made, really. And so I hadn't heard it. But I remember the click and you've heard this a lot. Even after the record came out, even after the hits were happening, the record sales were happening, even after all that, there wasn't anything particularly super special about it. It was a Michael Jackson record and everybody loved that. But it was like, um, I don't know. You weren't it, it was it was, you know, okay, well, you know. Michael's going to have two or three unbelievable hits off this record. It's going to be fun to see him perform. I think I might want to go to the concert. Kind of regular. You can kind of predict the arc of it. And then that Motown 25 thing happened. And I remember sitting and watching that show. And I've spent a lot of time doing television. I watched Michael's performance on that show. And there have been a few times this has happened. Twice to me televised. When he did that performance of Billy Jean on that show, I knew. The, I said to my wife at the time, I said, "Grab your socks here, because this is about to go nuclear." Wow! I know what I'm looking at. This is nuclear, because I can't tell you. He, it's hard in retrospect for anybody who wasn't sitting in America in 1984 which I guess that was that was in January of 84 or something like that.
1: But I want to know also, okay. when, when did you get the call that you had made the album? To my recollection,
0: I didn't know I made the album until my publisher called me and told me she had a copy of it for me. Wow. Nobody called me especially. I mean, to be honest though, now I had kind of a personal, I wasn't chum buddies with you if you know what if the way it really was Q would have called me if i hadn't made the record
1: not okay. if i did
0: so i kind of knew i no one's ever asked me that question before you know i'm telling you the absolute truth i knew that Q would have called me if i didn't make the record rather than if i did he's not the kind of guy that expects a professional to need that kind of babysitting you know what I mean? Yeah. He doesn't need to call me up and say anything hypey to me about being on the record. He doesn't. And I, I would have been surprised if he had. Um, I will tell you that it the record didn't surprise me. There have been records that did surprise me over the years. Like Crazy Pee record shocked me. But the human nature tracks I wrote to were a primitive version of what everyone has come to know. I mean, the guitar part was uh, a, 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 a festival for me. I mean, I hadn't heard that guitar played on it before. And the guitar work on the Thriller album is one of the most landmark guitar sessions in the history of the record business. That guitar on that record changed my life. <laughs> I mean, that was an amazing thing. He and Nile Rodgers, I mean, obviously, that same record changed my life. But um, other than that, the human nature I heard, Michael's performance did transport me. I must be honest. When I heard him sing the lyric, he did me such honor with the lyric. He read it so perfectly. And he performed the character that I fully intended. Michael... Assumed, and I, I maybe it was a conversation again I have later, but he knew who to be when he sang that record perfectly. So it sounded like what I heard in my head, and that doesn't always happen.
1: And uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, as we all know, you know, the the passing of Michael in two thousand nine, and you know, my my number one favorite artist of all time is is Michael Jackson. My second favorite artist of all time is John Mayer. And you know Yeah, I get there. that
0: it was it was the highest compliment. I, I almost had a chance to tell Mayer, thank you for it. The single greatest compliment of the lyricist I've ever gotten was when John Mayer didn't sing the song. Wow.
1: Yeah.
0: I would like to believe and I bet I'm right. That John Mayer knew that it was so true to the pain that persisted for Michael throughout his life, because Michael was a badgered person, as Carol um, I, I was, I had my experience with Michael Jackson was <clears throat> perfection. I mean, he was a regular person like anybody else but he was a great artist and he was a great person. And the the um, aggressive, ridiculous sort of voice that the media used with him has annoyed me a lot over the years. They're really just trying to sell newspapers and it was unfair. So I think mayor and I'd like to think he made the the decision on purpose for this, that reason is this lyric this lyric is what Michael could never do and it's one of the reasons he lies before you dead before his time it, it's but
1: all I, it also too I strikes me said. that the song is about about now that I know it's about Karen Carpenter and about a person's innocence um, stripped away so young and, and caused so much damage, the the, the song right. also has so much more meaning to me now, you know, knowing that it had the same impact on Michael's life.
0: Yeah, and it did, and um, it was a it was beyond rude that I took the liberty of writing that lyric for Michael. Honestly, it was beyond rude. Luckily, he was enough of great artist he could accept he could forgive my petty rudeness and go to my intent and catch the intent of the lyric. Not very many artists would do that. and Michael did. Wow. And so you know he, he, he forgave my petty rudeness because it was a rude act. It was very intrusive and rude of me to do that. Um, but my intentions were artistically pure. And it was socially very, very wrong of me to do. Um, so yeah, but I'd like to think that Mayor, maybe not specifically, but his he again is a great artist, and when he listened to the song, at the very least, he thought to himself, "I I, I can't, I'll never make it through this. I mean, I'll never make it through this song. No, I'll never make it through. I mean, but." This is too true. I mean, this is, this is the road not taken for Michael Jackson, but almost a lament, really.:
1: And, and I, John, to, you know to wrap up this, this amazing interview, and once again, thank you so much. This is unbelievable. And for this being my favorite song uh, of all time, man, uh, it just there are certain points in this interview that I get chills up my spine that this is un- unbelievable. Oh, good. You know, this interview to me is probably the most important interview I've ever done because, man, this song means so much to me. Literally, when I was a kid, i this was my first rap name was human nature. <laughs> so oh, really uh, Human nature was my rap name, and my uncle to this day, my nickname is human. Uh, <laughs> because this song meant that much to me, and i had I had human oh, nature I, I had human I, <laughs> I had human nature on my basketball shoes. Uh, that was my that. that was my basketball nickname. Uh, so yeah, like this—that's how much this song means to me. It like, defined, um, this song really wanted to really inspire me to become a songwriter, and so
0: well, and, and obviously Steve Picaro and Quincy were both right, they named it the right thing.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. I guess on a, a, on a closing statement, uh, if you could say anything to. To Michael for this early fifth anniversary I have to celebrate, what would you say to him?
0: Come back. Come back. Come
1: back. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Byrd of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recording. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at NBM Studios NYC. Special thank you to Hasela Moore for making this interview possible. I'm your host Corey Cambridge. Signing off till next time. Till next time.